JAXA International Podcast. Welcome to episode two of the JAXA International Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Elizabeth Tasker about some rather exciting topics such as exoplanets and Earth-like planets. We'll dive into JAXA's Hayabusa 2 and MMX missions and talk about so many more exciting topics. Please enjoy. Our guest today from JAXA's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, Associate Professor, Theoretical Astrophysicist, and Science Communicator, Elizabeth Tasker. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'd just like to start by asking you a very general question. What uh, is it that you do at JAXA? So at JAXA, I have sort of two hats that I wear. Uh, one is my own research, which is predominantly nowadays in exoplanets, so planets that are beyond our solar system and how they might form and evolve. And secondly, I'm also in the public relations department and I help with the global international outreach, uh, in particular for missions uh, like JAXA's Hayabusa 2 Asteroid Explorer and the upcoming MMX Martian Moons Exploration Mission. You're doing a lot of interesting things at JAXA. Can you uh, just briefly explain to us what the Hayabusa 2 and the MMX missions are? Uh, just to give more detail to anyone who might not have heard of them before. Yeah, obviously being part of the public relations department, the brief, the brief part you've just requested might be difficult, but I'll try and stop before the hour's up. <laughs> so Hayabusa 2 is... Um, is a mission um, to explore uh, predominantly asteroid Ryugu. It's just finished that part of the mission. So it was launched in 2014 and uh, it visited asteroid Ryugu, spent about 18 months around this asteroid, uh, taking two samples and also doing a lot of remote analysis. And then it arrived back on Earth almost exactly one year ago, dropping off that sample into the Australian desert where it was collected and brought back for curation in the uh, JAXA ISAS campus. And the spacecraft itself is still in space. It returned to deep space to head off on an extended mission to visit a new asteroid. And uh, the sample is currently uh, one year into its analysis. And in fact, we just uh, took part of that sample across the Pacific to give to NASA because we're sharing samples between our Hayabusa 2 mission and the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission, which will be returning to Earth, I believe, in 2023 with a sample from a different asteroid. And then the upcoming Martian Moons Exploration mission is also a sample return mission. So it's also going to be bringing back a sample from a celestial body. But that celestial body is not an asteroid this time. It's a moon, as the name indeed suggests. It is one of Mars's moons. So the mission is going to the vicinity of Mars, but not to Mars itself. Instead, it's going to examine both the two moons, Phobos and Deimos, and collect a sample from Phobos, which is the inner of the two moons, and bring that back to Earth. So it's due to launch in the fiscal year of 2024. That's actually quite interesting. Do you know exactly what uh, we hope to learn um, once we bring back these samples or, or what we're trying to learn specifically from, say, uh, the Hayabusa 2 samples that we've uh, been analyzing for the past year? Actually, both the science for these two missions are linked and their connection is really understanding how a planet becomes habitable. So in particular, when the Earth was formed, it is thought that it may have formed dry without any oceans, which is a strange concept because when you think of the Earth, you tend to picture a blue planet. In fact, the actual mass of water on our planet is pretty low because it's mainly on the surface. 
and it may have formed actually with very little water, if any. And this might have been delivered later. Now, for it to have been delivered, you need some kind of delivery system. So one possibility is that further out in our solar system, where it's colder, water would have frozen into ice and become part of things like asteroids and moons and small bodies. And then this might have been scattered in towards the inner planets, potentially by the gravity of the giant worlds like Jupiter or Saturn. And then this could have struck the young Earth and delivered our oceans. So we need evidence for this. Obviously, it was not recently. <laughs> so uh, one thing to do is to visit the asteroids, which are really rocky, rubbly leftovers of that planet formation process and analyse their composition. You know, do they have water content that's similar to that on Earth? And if so, you can try by analysing these asteroids to try and map their history and say, OK, where do we think you formed? Where did you end up? How does that mean that water travelled through the solar system? And the moons of Mars are actually part of this picture. For a start, we're not exactly sure how they formed. One possibility is they too are captured asteroids that were originally formed further out where it's cold and might be packed full of ice and organics and then were scattered inwards and snagged by Mars. The other option is they form similar to our own moon, which is with a giant, giant impact with the planet and this scattered material into orbit and it coalesced into the moons themselves. Now, both of these give us information. Obviously, if it's an asteroid, it's similar to Hyabusa 2. It tells us about this kind of delivery system from the outer solar system where you can get water to the inner solar system where you need water. Um, but if they're also formed from Mars itself, they will be formed from a much younger Mars. And we think young Mars may have even been habitable. So it would tell us, you know, how habitability begins and develops and is even lost on a planet. So both these missions, despite going to bodies very, very different from the Earth, are really about telling us about where we came ourselves. I guess we can learn quite a bit from that going forward. I suppose the analysis is going to take quite a bit of time, though. I assume so. This is definitely not my area of expertise. Every time I look at pictures of the curation room, all I see is, is pipes and wires and, and chambers all linked up and people in, you know, careful clean rooms because the last thing you want to do is bring back a sample from an asteroid and then contaminate it with life on earth so everything has to be you know immensely sterile uh, and the the one year we're about to get the one year anniversary and we we certainly have um, some initial results and the initial analysis has been done we've opened up the sample we confirmed that we brought back much more material than we expected and that was really exciting um, and this has all gone through uh, our initial curation chambers where the sample was obviously unpacked and some of it's been stored, actually quite a large fraction of that sample has been stored for the future. So one of the amazing things about sample return is that you don't just have one shot at it. You know, you can put aside some of that sample and analyse it later by, you know, using techniques that haven't been invented yet by scientists who might still be in high school now or younger. So it's, it's really an incredible gift to bring back a sample to Earth. Um, and the rest of the sample has been through an initial analysis using uh, you know, microscopes and using um, other tools that look at, for example, reflected infrared light that tells us something about its composition. And then once it finished in our curation chamber here, uh, six or maybe eight other groups, um, all of whom have international members, uh, went forward with that analysis. And then in the next year or so, I think uh, other groups from around the world will be able to write proposals and say, I've got a really good idea. I want the, you know, I, I really want to check this out and um, potentially receive part of that sample from Ryugu. So I think it's really appropriate that, you know, a sample that's designed to tell us about maybe how life started on Earth 
will have the opportunity to be analysed by, you know, okay, maybe not exactly everyone, but <laughs> certainly groups from all over the planet, because it's all towards a common goal. We all want to know how we're here together. A very big uh, mission and everybody, it's very international. So <laughs> it's quite amazing how everybody is working together on these kinds of projects. And uh, yourself, having worked on, on both the research side and the science communication side, uh, do you have a, a preference, uh, find one more enjoyable, or uh, do you have specific aspects about each that you uh, particularly love? I think I, I enjoy both, which is actually why I, I still do both, rather than actually committing myself to one or the other. Um, I would say in both cases, you know, it's this, this desire to, to make a difference, to feel that, you know, you've changed the world. And I feel both, both those components really have the potential to do that. Obviously, with research, you're at the bleeding edge. You're trying to find something out that no one's ever seen before and share it with people and you can add it to their research and slowly together you build up a picture of what really might be going on, you know, how our planet formed, how the solar system formed, you know, how stars and galaxies formed and you can contribute to that picture and it's, it's incredible. But it is a very, very small piece. Like when you do research, you focus on a tiny aspect um, on quite a narrow field and you're very, you try and find out everything about it, but it's a very small window. Whereas when I do the science writing and the public relations, um, I'm able to put it in a much bigger picture frame. And because of that, I'm able to reach a lot more people. So, you know, however well I write my research papers, the bottom line is not that many people are going to read them. And I probably met them at the last conference I attended. So it's not exactly what you've got to call reach there. But when you do science communication, you know, one of the things you throw out the window is the jargon. And you say, you know, you, you, you just explain it. He's not like, I don't believe in simplifying anything, but I do believe in explaining it. And so I try and write articles where, you know, anyone with an interest um, doesn't actually need to have a science degree to understand it. They just need to want to know about it. And that way you can reach a huge, uh, a huge audience. And that has a huge impact as well. Like for instance, um, research nowadays has become steadily more interdisciplinary. So even other scientists, if they're not in your direct field, are probably not reading your research papers, but might really benefit from the information there. So writing public outreach articles benefits the scientific community. It maybe allows connections that have just never been seen before, which is really exciting. It also reaches um, you know, people on grant committees. It reaches the media. Um, if there seem to be a lot of interest in your research, maybe you'll find it easier to get funding. And of course, you know, one should never forget, I hope it reaches the next generation of scientists who might, may or may not be considering science, but maybe they read an article and think, gosh, you know, an asteroid, we've actually got a bit of an asteroid on Earth, maybe that would be something I could work on. And the answer is, hell yes, it's definitely something you can work on. Uh, please do find more about it. Thank you. That sounds like a, a very uh, noble and meaningful cause doing both of those things. And, and exactly like you said, I mean, I've obviously not read as many research papers as you, but I know that uh, in different fields, the, the papers definitely use uh, very different jargon and it can be quite difficult, even if you are used to uh, reading research papers to understand other fields. I, I guess in relation to, I guess, those fields in particular, uh, I think there's a lot of listeners out there probably who may not really understand what a theoretical uh, astrophysicist or, or a theoretical scientist in general uh, does. So I kind of want to ask you if there was a way you could sort of run me through, um, and it could be the simplified version of, uh, I guess, the process of a, a research project that you might do. 
you know, how do you decide where to begin? Uh, what kind of work does it entail? And how do you know when you have results in, uh, in a theoretical research project? So I think the main thing about theoretical work is it does not involve a laboratory or a telescope in my case. So for astrophysics, um, some work is laboratory based, but a lot is observational with big telescope facilities. And I confess I have never owned a telescope um, or indeed looked through one. Uh, well, actually, that's not okay. That's not entirely true. I haven't looked through a telescope, but I certainly haven't done it regularly and I don't do it as part of my research. So theoretical uh, work, therefore, either uses sort of pen and paper calculations or really more commonly these days, we'll use a computer um, for different kinds of programming and simulation. And for my work, um, my work is almost all computational based and I've used a few different techniques. One is very large scale uh, hydrodynamical simulations, which are run on sort of, you know, hundreds of processes. So it's not exactly your laptop job. Um, and they model the gas and dust in the galaxy. And you might ask a question. Normally when you start that, you might be like, okay, I've got a planet. I want to know in its early stage in formation, how does its orbit change? So you might just have a question like that in mind. And obviously there's been previous work on that subject that might suggest the question is interesting. <laughs> um, and then, then you might build a computational model of it. So early on in a planet's history, it's forming actually out of a disk of dust and gas that circles a young star. And this dust sort of collides and sticks and it steadily gets and builds a bigger and bigger object. And eventually you have something that vaguely resembles a planet. But the surrounding disk, that surrounding dust and gas can also act as a bit of a drag force. Like if you're walking in a high wind or similar and you're feeling this sort of pull on you from this surrounding material. And that can cause a planet's orbit to change. And we call this migration. So one of the projects I was working on uh, fairly recently was to ask, well, how how fast is this migration? And, you know, what what could stop it? So I built a model where I had a central star. And then I had this disk of dust and gas and I put a young planet in it. And then um, the computer simulation solves the equations of physics to find out what that force is on that planet and how its orbit changes as a result. And technically, anything you get out of that simulation is a result. However, <laughs> not all of it is necessarily material needed for nature or science paper. In particular, one of the things you have to make sure of is that you haven't made a mistake so that what you're getting out is genuine physics. And it's not, for example, a computer problem, like you might have made a programming error, or perhaps you haven't actually made a programming error, but your resolution just isn't good enough in the simulation. So if you're looking at a photograph, you know, you can imagine a grainy photograph and it gets sharper and sharper and sharper. So that's the resolution. Um, if your simulation is effectively grainy, you can actually change the physics because you're just not seeing perhaps the gas close enough to the planet or something similar like that. And therefore you can get a, a bad result. Um, so one of the things you have to check before, you know, you start waving your paper at a prestigious journal is whether your results are truly due to that physics and not due to um, a mistake or a resolution error on your part. How long does uh, this process generally take? Let's say you already have a, a question in mind you want to uh, check the formation of a, uh, a specific planet, for example? It it doesn't really have, it's hard to put a time scale on it. It really depends on how much work you've done before. Like if this is entirely new and it's your first paper on that area, it might be a few years. Um, on the other hand, if it's your second paper following on from another one, it might be, you know, six months or a year. What would the average day 
for you look like if, if there is such a thing? There, there isn't really, but there are tasks that I, I do a lot of. Um, obviously, being uh, interested in computer simulations, um, I might do quite a lot of programming. So, um, you know, if I'm doing a new problem, then I'm going to need to write a bit of new code to set that up. Um, I also might be debugging a problem that clearly hasn't worked, <laughs> trying to find out where the error in my code is. Or I might have a simulation that's looking pretty promising and I might be uh, writing new code to analyze it. You know, maybe, for instance, to look uh, at the how the density changes from the star through to the planet through this new gas disk. So I might be writing a code that plots a graph. Um, also, presenting your results in science is very important. So I might be uh, perhaps preparing for a conference and therefore I might be presenting a poster, which typically is a very large sort of A1 size sheet of paper where you try and encapsulate all your results while still being engaging and fun. So people will stop by your poster. It's, it's quite a challenging exercise. Um, or I might be giving a talk and in which case I'll be designing slides um, that also should be engaging and fun, hopefully, uh, and not put your audience to sleep. Or, um, you know, maybe I'm writing the research paper itself and doing a draft of that. When you do the programming part, do you use any specific programming languages or is this uh, depending on what you're trying to do? Um, it, it depends, really. Uh, most physicists at some point will be using Fortran because we, we still believe that that language is, is you know, really current. Uh, often Fortran 77, because as we all know, uh, punch card compatibility is absolutely important with modern day programming. Now that is a joke, people. It's, it's really ridiculous we use Fortran 77. Um, for my analysis, I typically use Python um, because uh, I really like Python notebooks primarily, which are a way of um, writing computer code actually in a web browser and you can display the graph sort of instantly as opposed to needing to compile the code and then run the code and then save the image, which can be a bit, a bit slow. Python is very good at quickly analyzing data. I'd like to get back to the topic of exoplanets that you brought up uh, earlier. I think a lot of people are interested in, you know, what is beyond our solar system. Can you, I guess, just tell us very briefly, like what exactly are exoplanets and, uh, you know, if they're, if they're, you can categorize them into, into types or anything, are there different types of exoplanets? So um, an exoplanet or alternatively extrasolar planet is very simply a planet that is not in our solar system. So anything beyond that isn't orbiting the sun um, would be an exoplanet. And uh, the types, we do have types, but the categories are changing all the time because although we have now discovered thousands of exoplanets beyond the sun, this is still a fairly new field. I mean, the first discoveries were the early 1990s. So we still only have seen a small fraction of what's out there. And in particular, it's very easy, or I say very easy, okay, it's always difficult, but it's easier to see planets that are orbiting very close to their star. And because of that, we haven't really seen a solar system analog yet. And that may be because there isn't one, but alternatively, it may simply be that it's very, very difficult to find planets on longer orbits. So ones that take you know, a long time to orbit their star. And as a result, we haven't been able to spot them yet. So although we have some classes of planets, they're not a definitive set because until we can really see the whole planetary system, you know, from the equivalent of Mercury through to Pluto, then it's very hard to talk concretely about planet classes. So we can certainly say we found gaseous planets like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. And we found planets whose size suggests they should be rocky, like, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. 
And then we found this sort of in-between class of planet where we're not actually sure whether it's a small gaseous world or a giant rocky world. And at the moment, we're not able to entirely decipher what kind of planet that is. Is there any particular type of planet from uh, the ones you mentioned or, or I guess any other kind that I'm, I'm using the word type loosely here, but any kind of planet uh, in particular out of, uh, I guess, the thousands of exoplanets that have been uh, discovered to exist that you find particularly fascinating or, or has something very noteworthy about it that you'd like to bring up? So I think this in-between class that we're not sure whether it's a small gaseous world or a giant rocky world is particularly interesting because we're not sure whether it's a small gaseous world or a giant rocky world. There's no solar system analogue there. We have no planets that are larger than the Earth but smaller than Neptune. But we found lots of planets in that in-between size class around other stars. And hopefully our next generation of telescopes will be able to start to probe their composition and tell us a bit more about what we're dealing with. Like, for instance, is it, you know, it's got a rocky surface like the Earth, but maybe a much thicker atmosphere. So it's a kind of hybrid world between these, these gaseous and rocky worlds. Or maybe it's quite different entirely. For example, it might have huge amounts of water. As I mentioned, the Earth by mass actually has very little water. But imagine if you were to say, put in like 50% mass of water, it'd be a huge ocean world. And that might give you one of these sort of in-between sizes with an in-between density. So I think that would be very exciting to explore. There, there's definitely extraordinary distances uh, between us and these these exoplanets. So I, uh, and what you mentioned about, uh, I guess we're waiting for the next generation of telescopes to be able to actually see uh, them a lot more clearly. I, I'm not sure, I, I guess this will be a two-part question, but how much do we actually know about exoplanets currently and uh, I guess with the next generation of telescopes, how much more information do you think we will be able to uh, obtain from observations? So certainly for smaller planets, ones that might have a rocky surface, at the moment, we typically only know size. And to give you an idea of exactly how useless that is for telling what the planet might really be like, the Earth and Venus are almost exactly the same size, but only one of those would you want to go for a holiday on. So size alone doesn't really give us much of an indication about the planet type. Um, if you can measure its mass as well, you can get a density and then say, OK, yes, rocky. But beyond that, not a lot of information. Um, however, uh, exoplanet science is really sort of on this brink between discovery and what we would call characterization, where characterization is trying to find out the nature of the planet. And for a rocky planet, trying to start to ask questions about what the surface is like. You know, is it a Venus hot place of hell or could it even be habitable you know what's down there and for that the next generation of telescopes will be uh, trying to probe first of all the atmospheres so in particular there's a technique that we call transmission spectroscopy that's going to be very exciting in the next 10 years or so and what this does is it's able to probe the top layer of the atmosphere now that still leaves a lot of uncertainty because you have to go from this signature at the top of the atmosphere down to the surface that is going to be very tricky but nevertheless it is our first evidence of what is actually going on in the planet so rather than it just being a shadow with a single measurement that says you know one earth radius across we've actually got some contents that is going to be the product of everything going on in the planet, from the geology to any biology, through any chemistry. And it will be our first probe as to what that planet is really like. Future sounds exciting for what we're able to learn about these uh, exoplanets. 
I think one of the more eye-catching things that often comes up in, I guess, space news is the idea of or the discovery of Earth-like planets. Um, could you explain, you know, what are these these so-called Earth-like planets and why they garner so much attention? Yes. Yeah, so this is really where I feel the media gets a bit overly excited. <laughs> Not because it isn't exciting, it genuinely is, and it's really, really cool. But at the moment, I feel the term Earth-like is a bit of a misnomer. So in particular, what we have at the moment, as I mentioned, is just size. So what we've got is an Earth-sized planet. And really, you can always switch that for Venus-sized. And if it changes how you interpret that article, then the term is confusing, <laughs> because we do just have size. And obviously people are excited because, you know, it, it stems into the ultimate question of are we alone in the universe? We've now discovered our planetary system is not uncommon. Uh, there are planets around perhaps even most stars and certainly most stars start off with the ability to make planets. So it's obvious, obviously of interest to us, well, could any of them be habitable or even inhabited? So I think that's why it's very exciting. And that is absolutely true. But discovering whether we're alone in the universe will be the journey of our generation. So I get a little frustrated when we see media articles saying most Earth-like planet ever. And you're like, dude, you found something that's Earth-sized. It could still be Venus. And I feel that deprives people of the journey we're about to go on, where we're going to be discovering so much about these worlds. And some of them may even be habitable and some of them may be more alien than anything even Star Wars has managed to come up with. So it's, it's a super exciting journey and I don't really want to cut to the punchline. Um, when there's so much to find out. And related to that, another term that I feel people are shouting at the podcast is, oh, but wait, Venus and Earth, Earth is in the habitable zone and Venus isn't. And I'll say, yes, yes, fair point. But the problem with the habitable zone is as we usually define it, we define it for where the Earth can support liquid water. That is a planet with our geology and our atmosphere and our surface pressure. Where could you put the Earth in an orbit around the sun and still keep our oceans? And that defines the normal definition of the habitable zone. And to give you an idea, this doesn't apply to other planet types. I mean, both Mars and the moon are inside our habitable zone, but neither of them can support surface water and neither of them are habitable. <laughs> so it's a, a definition that is really restricted to the Earth and we don't know whether any planet we find inside the habitable zone will be Earth-like enough to support liquid water in the same region. So we might find, for example, that when we are able to probe what these planets are like, we find a lot of planets that are similar to Mars and Venus inside the habitable zone. And the habitable zone is not a good guide for separating those planet types. Do you have any idea of the sort of the timeline of when we'll be able to uh, know more, spe more specific information about uh, these let's say, Earth-sized planets in the uh, <laughs> strangely named habitable zone. I think the next, the next decade is going to be very exciting. I mean, JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, is um, due to be launched this month. I feel slightly nervous saying that because we've been delayed a lot of time, so I wonder if I'm jinxing it. But it is due to be launched uh, December 2021. Um, and it has the capabilities to at least try and... Uh, probe the atmosphere of these rocky sized planets um, it's still going to be a push for JWST so I don't know how successful it will be but it will certainly be a good step another really exciting project actually being designed here at JAXA is called UV Specs and it's an instrument that will fly on the Russian uh, 
WSO World Space Observatory and look at planets, well in particular look at the shadow planets cast across their star in the ultraviolet. And in the ultraviolet the atmosphere of the Earth and the atmosphere of Venus looks very different. So this might be a way of relatively quickly differentiating between Earth and Venus-like planets. And that would be very interesting to know whether the habitable zone really is dividing all Earths and Venuses, or whether we're going to find that they're all very mixed together on similar orbits. All right. I'd, uh, I'd like to actually get into sort of uh, your career and uh, history here after all that uh, extraordinarily interesting information about uh, exoplanets. I think we'll need to save some of that for future episodes as well, see what we can have going forward. Can you just sort of give us uh, an idea of, of how you got to where you are now, uh, the sort of road that you took to become a, you know, a scientist in the first place and how you got to JAXA and I guess any motivation you had along the way? So I, um, I read physics at university. Actually, I read theoretical physics because I discovered I had no skills at all in the laboratory. Um, and I, I, stuck, I, I stuck fairly broadly to physics, not astrophysics. Now, in the UK, certainly at the time, um, that is fairly common. I could have read physics with astrophysics, but you can't do or you couldn't do pure astrophysics as an undergraduate degree because it's a speciality. Um, and I knew I was interested in astrophysics at the time, but I also felt, well, you see a lot of astrophysics in the news and there's often been you know, some amazing TV programmes, programmes like Cosmos and similar. So perhaps there were other areas of physics that were actually just as fascinating that I wouldn't know so much about. So I intentionally stuck broad. Now, as it happened, obviously, there were not other areas of physics that I was even more interested in because I ultimately did focus on astrophysics. But I didn't regret staying broad. I mean, astrophysics, certainly the aspect that I study is very much a branch of physics. And I've used really all of my physics degree at one point or another. So I, I appreciate the fact I, I stayed broad for as long as possible. Uh, and I really enjoyed my physics degree. And I was at the University of Durham at the time in the UK. And then um, having decided that actually, no, I, I really did want to do astrophysics. And I was interested in programming and computer simulations. So the idea of doing a theoretical PhD, doing some computer modeling was very appealing. And I moved down to the University of Oxford. So from the north of the country to the south of the country. And I did my PhD there. Actually in Oxford, it's a DPhil, but it's exactly the same qualification. And then after that, I did what we call postdoctoral research fellowships. And these are short term research contracts designed to increase your experience. And they're a fantastic opportunity to travel. So I went to the US and I did a three year position at the University of Florida. And then I did a two year position up in Canada at McMaster University in Hamilton. And then after that, um, I came across to Hokkaido University, which is in Sapporo in Japan in the north. And I came across as an assistant professor. So that's the first rung of the faculty ladder. And I stayed there for five years. And then I applied to JAXA uh, to come down and do both research and public relations activity. And I started in JAXA uh, approximately five years ago. Thank you for that. I guess on the note of uh, Hokkaido, I've, uh, I've been to Sapporo before and it's definitely a fun place to visit. I know it's, uh, it can get quite cold. How did you find uh, living and working in Hokkaido? Well, fortunately, I had just come from Canada, so that definitely helped. <laughs> uh, so I, I, you know, I, I went down to Florida and I had sort of three years without a winter. And then obviously I, I was clearly missing the cold because then I went to Canada and then spent five years in Sapporo. So clearly Florida weather had not suited me too much. 
Um, but it's true, Sapporo is incredibly snowy. In fact, it was snowier than anything I experienced in the years I lived in the Toronto region of, of Canada. And it's, it's incredible. Um, like there are there were years where you just didn't actually see clear tarmac from potentially November through to about April. Because although they were always shoveling the snow, it was snowing all the time. So you just never got down to the, the tarmac. And you were wading through, like you'd you go through the footpaths and the footpaths would be pressed down. So as long as you had good snow boots with, um, often you could buy these snap-on treads to give you a bit more grip. But either side where the snow had been pushed, like it was piled higher than my head. I'd never seen anything like it. So it was really, it was really quite incredible. And I was very glad that I lived relatively close to campus because walking to work was, you know, a careful balancing act and had to be done quite carefully. And I always wondered what would happen if you broke your leg? I mean, how would you get around? There's, there's no way to use crutches out here. So fortunately that never happened to me, but it remains a mystery of how people cope with that situation. After your time in Hokkaido, did you, what exactly initially made you want to apply to JAXA? So I was very happy at Hokkaido. Um, it's one of the big universities in Japan and I had a great position. I had fabulous students. A shout out to all of those. Hi guys. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was having a really good time, but I was steadily getting more and more passionate about science communication. I'd always been writing. Like <clears throat> I started entering science writing competitions as an undergraduate and I kept a, a personal blog for years and years and years. So writing was always a big part of my life. But I started to feel that although I enjoyed my research, I could make a different kind of difference, as we discussed before, about reaching a bigger audience, reaching different people with the science communication. And I wanted to do that more as part of my job. Now, Hokkaido were in no way against this. And I wrote a roughly monthly research column for them on different aspects of research of people I met. And I really enjoyed that, but it was never officially part of my job, which always meant if the department's needs were in a different area, I had to do them. Um, so, for example, um, I had teaching responsibilities, which obviously takes a lot of time if you want to do it even moderately well. And I quite enjoyed it. But if I, my teaching load had increased still more, which it might have done, I wouldn't have been able to also do the science communication. So I started to look for a role in which I could combine the research and the science communication more officially. And for that, a really big research institute like JAXA is a good place to look because we have a huge number of international partners and actually outreach is a way in which we return the money that is taxpayer money on space missions. Like I think you, you do need to tell people what you're doing with that much money. So science communication is a very big thing in JAXA. Uh, it needs to be done. It's very, very important. And so um, when I saw they were advertising for an associate professor position, which is the next rung of the ladder, and I was just about to reach associate professor position at Arcaido, I actually sent them an email and I said, look, I have a research program in exoplanet science. It is theoretical, so it's not perhaps the greatest match with any of your space missions, but I'm also a passionate science communicator. Here's some of my work. Would you be interested in um, letting me participate in the international communication side? And by that stage, I was also already working with the Hayabusa 2 team uh, to help some of their translation work. So um, when I was invited down, I, I sort of discussed what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And that obviously my Japanese was terrible. Well, maybe not obviously, but I just tell everyone now, my Japanese is appalling. And so I was not volunteering Japanese support here, but I was volunteering translation services with the help of Google Translate into um, what I hope is near perfect English. And I hoped that I could reach, you know, 
our international partners and inter people abroad with what JAXA were up to. And so JAXA bought this idea, uh, which I feel is one of the most important lessons I learned. And that is, if you want to do something, tell people. Because at no point did JAXA actually advertise for an international science communicator. They advertised for a regular associate professor position. And I applied and said, sure, I technically have the qualifications you need, but I really want to do something slightly different. How about it? And they hadn't advertised for that, but they were all for it. And they hired me to do a different job. So I would definitely say, if you're passionate about something, let people know. Great advice. Sort of jumping way back to the science communication, uh, what, what exactly do you run to, at JAXA right now? Uh, the uh, certain websites or, or accounts? And we can link to some of these in the show notes if there's anything that you want to mention. Even better. So um, for generally for ISAS, I run a, a blog called Cosmos uh, with my colleague Masumi Azubi. And uh, we run this now in bilingually. When I first started it, I ran it English only as a way of writing articles about missions and projects that didn't yet have English web pages, because quite often the Japanese web page would come first and then later on, if you're lucky, some English would appear. But it meant we had a lot of projects that we were actually talking about at major conferences and there was no English information about them. So that's why I originally set up Cosmos. Uh, but now uh, that's expanded and we write it in both English and Japanese. And it covers really anything we're interested in at ISAS. So I do interviews with the scientists about upcoming projects, about existing projects, about missions, all sorts of, of topics that are related to ISAS research go into Cosmos. And we do, you know, a few posts a month. Um, so it'd be great if people were interested in checking that out. I also work specifically for the missions, as I mentioned, Hayabusa 2 and MMX, the Martian Moon Mission. And for those, um, I do the English web pages. So there I have a counterpart on the Japanese side. So for Hayabusa 2, the main outreach is led by Professor Makoto Yoshikawa. And then on MMX, I work with Ayubi Tokuji uh, and they do the Japanese side. On Hayabusa 2, the Japanese normally comes first and I do a translation. On MMX, um, we work together and either the English or the Japanese might come first and then we'll translate the other direction. And both those missions have web pages and Twitter feeds. Excellent. We'll uh, try to make sure that we link all those in the show notes for anyone who wants to go check those out, which I, I think they are also excellent resources for uh, for learning more about uh, not just what JAX is doing, but about several scientific endeavors in general. In, in terms of resources, I always like to ask if you have any sort of tools or resources for people that you can recommend, uh, let's say, in your field of work, for example, for People who may or may not currently be involved professionally, I, this is a wide range of people I know, but uh, let's just say people who are interested in space, space research as a hobby or students who are working their way towards the profession. If there's sort of, you know, anything that they can use to uh, either participate or just uh, learn a lot about these. So there's, um, fortunately, space does tend to get quite a lot of media attention. Now, as I said, sometimes you should be a little sceptical when you hear Earth-like planet discovered. But a lot of that material is excellent. So um, sites like Scientific American or Space.com uh, often have really good articles. Um, I also have my own book, uh, The Planet Factory, which is a popular science book and came out in 2017 with a small update in 2019. And that covers um, the basics of planet formation. I do not assume you have a physics degree. Um, I do assume that you might be considering getting one. No, that's not totally true. It's <laughs> it, You should be able to, uh, I hope very much, you'll be able to enjoy it at any level at all. 
Um, but I try not to skimp too much on the details because what I personally found really irritating when I read uh, popular science books, especially when I was an undergrad or um, slightly more junior, is I found that people occasionally just said something offhand like, oh, and then these particles just stick together and you get a planet. And I think, how? How do they stick together? And often the answer is it's really complicated, but they don't tell you that. They kind of gloss over it and make you feel a bit dumb for not realising exactly how it works. So as a result, I will say my book does not skip on details, <laughs> but feel free to skip chapters if they're not as interesting to you. Um, but there's there's other um, lots of other resources. Obviously, NASA and JAXA put out a lot about their space missions and often uh, quite a lot of background information. So if you're interested in asteroids, do check out mission pages for Hayabusa 2, OSIRIS-REx. And NASA's just launched the Lucy mission, which is heading to asteroids that uh, follow Jupiter around on its orbit, known as the Trojans. So a lot of related missions gives you a huge amount of background science too. So I'd really recommend those. I just have a couple last questions here. Uh, I like to go really big with these final questions. So one of them is a hypothetical question. And if, let's say, you suddenly had a near unlimited budget to put toward any uh, particular project or a completely new project uh, is also acceptable in your field, what would you like to use that on? If somebody you know, just wanted to give you billions and billions of dollars for a single project, is there something that you'd want to do? I mean, if it really is unlimited, um, I guess I would put my money into building successor to the James Webb Space Telescope. So that sounds almost unbelievable given the telescope hasn't even launched yet, but people are discussing it. So recently we had the National Academy of Sciences in the US, their decadal survey came out where they are talking about, you know, what are the projects for the next few decades? And one of the ones that was mentioned there is basically the successor to Hubble and the James Webb Telescope with an even larger mirror that is capable of starting to detect the light from these planets and planets that are roughly the size of the Earth. So if I really had an unlimited budget, you know, I, I'd build I'd build that telescope and it will be challenging because launching a mirror that large into space is is no mean feat. It's going to be extremely difficult. Indeed, the JWST is going to be a very difficult launch as well. Once it's up, it has to go through. I think it's hundreds of steps to get it fully deployed. So it's, it's pretty scary stuff. And I'm talking about something even bigger. But uh, if we did that, then, you know, not only would we start to be able to get light from the top of these atmospheres and start to find out, you know, a little bit about the planets. But if we could directly see the planets themselves and look at the light reflected directly off their surfaces, we'd also get a lot more information about what these worlds are really like. A great endeavor and I guess we're already uh, quite excited to see how the James Webb telescope performs. Just as a final question I'd like to ask you if you have any interesting sort of fact or theory or say suggestion any kind of piece of information that you'd really like the audience to uh, consider or, or ponder on during the rest of the day after listening to this podcast something uh, uh, you know preferably uh, somewhat related to your field but anything big and uh, it doesn't even have to be big, just something that, you know, people can really think about as, as a scientific question or interesting tidbit. I think what I always want people to take away is how similar the Earth and Venus would look if we were exoplanets. I mean, we know they're incredibly different because we live on one and we have attempted somewhat successfully to send probes to the surface of the other. But here you have two Earth-sized planets in our solar system that have undergone wildly different evolutions. One is home to 
I, I don't even want to put a number on it, so many different species of life. And the other one will melt a spacecraft in under two hours. You know, these, these have incredibly different histories and we do have a number of missions that will be trying to understand the difference between these two planets. But when you see the news about an, you know, a, an exoplanet that is Earth-sized, remember it's also Venus-sized. And we're on a journey to discover both how these planets evolve differently and whether we're seeing a Venus or an Earth out there or something that is incredibly different from either because these planets are not like each other on the surface. So exactly how alien might there be in worlds born around a different star? I think that's my that's the thing I would like people to think on. Similarities between Earth and Venus and how different uh, all the other planets out there might be. That's uh, definitely something interesting to think about. Thank you very much for that. And and I know that you are extremely busy. You have a lot of uh, both research and science uh, communication to get to. So I don't want to take too much more of your time. So I'll just uh, say thank you so much for joining us today on the show. And uh, I hope that we can, you know, do a round two sometime, have another uh, interview with you in the future. Once again, thank you so much for coming. Thanks very much. <laughs>